I'm Lisa Stone, and you are listening to Season 8 of Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 8 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone. I hope you all had a great July 4th celebration, a nice long weekend. It's always kind of weird when these holidays fall in the middle of the week and it just seems like the whole week is just kind of shot. But hopefully you had some time with family and friends on the tennis court, around the tennis court, maybe a break from the tennis court, but whatever. I hope you had a great celebration. In this week's episode, we chat with Bill Patton, who those of you who have been tuning in to Parenting Aces for a while, have heard Bill on this podcast many times in the past, though it has been a few years. And Bill and I actually wrote an ebook together, oh gosh, probably three or four years ago. And um, we, we interviewed each other and that got transcribed into book form. And it did very well on Amazon, actually hit number one bestseller for a minute there. But uh, anyway, Bill's got a new book out called The Athlete-Centered Coach. And Bill is a tennis coach himself, but he is also a student of coaching in general. He spends a lot of time learning about the ins and outs of being a coach and improving as a coach, not just in terms of tennis, but across all different types of sports, across different facets of life as well. And this new book, though, it is long, I will warn you, it is about 400 pages, but it is really helpful in terms of how to choose a coach for your child, the important things to look for when interviewing coaches or when watching coaches with your child on the court. And I I highly recommend it. We'll have a link in the show notes. So be sure and check that out on parentingaces.com. And speaking of parentingaces.com, if you haven't joined the site already, either as a free member or as a premium member, I hope you'll take a couple minutes and do that. And that way you continue to have full access to all our content and we, we want the information out. We want you to have it. So go to parentingaces.com, click on the little flashing join button on the top right, and it'll take you about two minutes. Um, it's very, very simple. So with that said, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Bill Patton and sit back, relax, and, and take it all in. Bill Patton, it has been quite a while since you've done the Parenting Aces podcast. Welcome back. Hi, Lisa. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for all that you're doing with tennis. Well, back at you, and you've got a new book out that we're going to discuss today, and I really just want to give you the opportunity to share the impetus behind your book. Uh, The book is called The Athlete-Centered Coach, and for my listeners, there will be a link to the book in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. But um, in the meantime, Bill, why another book? What inspired you to write? And this is way more in-depth than your past writings. Yeah, thanks for noticing that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a little so, hard not uh, to. <laughs> then, um, okay, then bear with me for a second. You're probably going to hear some noises in the background because I have I have my cats who are doing their thing, and then I'm having a little technical issues. But, okay, the inspiration. You know, it's interesting because I don't feel – so much like this was an inspiration. Um, it was more of a feeling like, okay, here, this is something that needs to be done. Uh, it's a, it's a need in the overall sports culture. And, um, so you know, not necessarily and, uh, specific to tennis. It's not necessarily specific to tennis, but there are a lot of tennis stories in it. I tried to make the book, you know, more palatable for the general sports coach. So there will be some some familiar stories from professional and college sports that people know of. And and there will be some other experiences between myself and coaches that I know who are friends of mine who coach different sport, different activities um, to kind of round it out. 
you know, if I thought of, if it was too tennis specific that, you know, some coaches coaching other sports would tune it out. Gotcha. So I think let's jump right in because we only have an hour and having interviewed you multiple times in the past, I know that our hour tends to go much quicker than most. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to waste any time here. Um, so let's jump in. Yeah. Um, let's start by having you explain what you mean by athlete centered coaching. Okay. That's good because that's why it's 400 pages and 125,000 words because, because it's not simple. It's not simple. And I think when people hear that, I think what they assume is, is it's sort of the player's coach that lets the athletes do as they wish, you know? So, so the first, I think the first assumption is that, and it's not that. Because so essentially what it's boil it down very quickly, it would be when the coach takes stock of who they are and what their biases are and puts all of their focus on the athlete and helping the athlete develop their own ownership, their own their own direction of how they're going to play and the decision making, the work ethic. And, and so the coach is really focused, you know, as much as possible solely on the athlete and what they need. Um, now, part of what an athlete needs to some extent is a structure. So coaches who understand the different developmental stages of an athlete's life understand that different structures are necessary. So, you know, if I'm coaching seven-year-old in soccer, well, I better have a very fast-moving practice that doesn't focus on any one activity for more than about 10 minutes or 15 minutes maximum. And, you know, we're going to have some silly behavior in there. So there's going to have to be a little, you know, there's going to have to be a break and there's going to have to be some um, restructuring and some calming down of those goofy little kids to keep it fun for them. Right. You know, that's, that's another huge part of it is building in enjoyment. Um, uh, Wayne Bryan said famously that if you gave him a minute at any time, and, and a minute, a piece of paper and a pencil, he can write down, you know, up to 20 names of people who have, are actively afraid of their parent or coach who are currently playing on tour. So, his point is, yes, you can beat your child onto the tour. But is that, is that, that's a quality of life issue. Is that really what you want to do? Mm-hmm. True, true. So, so the athlete-centered coach, just to kind of summarize, is a coach who is gearing practices, gearing coaching sessions around the needs of a particular athlete based on the stage of development the athlete is currently in. Am I summarizing That's that correctly? Part of it. That's okay. part of it. And they're and they're they're putting their ego aside. And, you know, and and that's another thing we can get into is what is ego? What does ego mean? And and so, you know, I I was a psychology undergrad, so I know just enough psychology to be dangerous. This is what I what they tell us. Um, But it's really interesting to me. The word ego, if you look in the Urban Dictionary, has a negative connotation. But really, it's clinical understanding. It's just just your self-concept. It's who you think you are. Mm -hmm. And there are people with healthy egos and there are people with very weak egos and there are people with overly strong egos. And then, you know, all the way up to, you know, megalomaniacs and whatnot. Right. So, um, so, you know, having a well-established ego boundary and helping establish, helping your athletes to learn to establish their own healthy ego boundaries is really important. Um, I know that there are plenty of coaches out there that can relate to when the athletes do something special, how humbling it is as a coach 
to observe that and realize that you played a role in facilitating that and yet realizing you didn't make a shot, you didn't dribble the ball, you didn't make one pass and all of that. It was it was all about them. Right, right. And so how does a coach learn to become less about themselves and become athlete-centered? Because I think that's a challenge for a lot of people, especially coaches who are former athletes themselves. Uh, You know what? It is a tough question, and it's not automatic. It absolutely is not automatic. And who I am hates who I've been. So, you know, I look back on coaching in my 20s and early 30s and, you know, Uh, always looking at other coaches to see, am I better than them? Are they better than me? You know, oh, this guy's a clown. Oh, that, I can't believe that's a grandma over there coaching. I mean, these are real thoughts that I've had in my head. And um, so it takes time. It takes time. I think you have to, to some extent, you probably have to take your lumps. You have to, you have to have your epiphany. Um, And so, Something that's been happening a lot lately is um, I've been talking with young coaches and like a a young coach, this has happened a few times in the last couple of years, is the young coach says, as he looks out on, you know, some 3035 tennis coaches who are grandmothers, grandfathers, you know, recreational tennis players, and the comment is, oh, now, now we know why the game is in decline. And that's when I stop them and I go, no, no, I stop them dead in their tracks, right? At that point, I go, no, you know what? We need everybody. And so there are people that a grandmother or grandfather can reach that you can't and I can't. And there are things that there are things that a 19 year old can teach to a, a, a 17 year old much easier than you can because the experience is so close to where they are. So, so what, what I think we need to do is is realize is really respect and value every single coach that's out there. Um, it's a really big part of it. So just to go, just to realize, okay, I do my thing, and I might be good at a at a certain specialty, or I might have a very wide scope of things that I can do, but it's not complete. And maybe someone has a more limited scope of what they can do, or they have lesser expertise, but they're still valuable to somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think, you know, the challenge is when you get somebody with that limited expertise, that limited knowledge, who then markets him or herself as having the wide range of expertise and knowledge and charges accordingly and is a really good salesperson. And, you know, it becomes very problematic for especially a developing junior player who has a limited amount of time to reach a level if they, if they aspire to play college tennis. Okay. So Lisa, when did the snake oil industry begin? No, oh, I mean generations and generations ago. Time immemorial. And, right. And how and how often do people rail against the snake oil salesman? I mean, it's an so ongoing can, issue for sure. Right. But, so there but, will I could I can I think I can confidently say there will always be snake oil salesmen. So so then we have an ethical dilemma. Um, we have an ethical dilemma of, you know, how much time do we spend on that? How much time do we spend complaining about those people? So it, clearly it's buyer beware. Right. And, well, and I, don't think, be, I don't think it's an issue of complaining. I think it's an, a question of helping families discern good from not right. good. Right. And, and so I think that's more of a challenge. And I think that's part of the value of this book, Bill, is you really go into some, some very in-depth concepts about coaching that anyone reading this and then looking at their child's coach could say, 
hey, wait a minute, you know, my kid's coach isn't exhibiting these traits or doing these things, or, you know, my kid's coach is doing a great job at this, man, we did a good job, you know, (laughs) choosing the right coach. And, and so, you know, to me, that's the value or a value of having a book like this. Okay. So, so that's perfect because you just, you just answered the question for me and I really appreciate that. Um, So, because that look what just happened right there, right? You have, and so I I think the way you presented that is great to the audience because that's what people are thinking and that's what people are worried about, all the snake oil salesmen. But instead, what it really is about is finding true north. So the book is at my best attempt, one one man's opinion, um, having been a fan of coaches and a fan of sports my most of my entire life. And you know, all the different little nuances to it. So, um, you know, like for instance, there are people that would otherwise be good coaches, except that their university runs a, a long-term systematic sexual abuse program. Yeah. You know, so, so the concept of safe sports comes into it. And I think this is the great thing that that's really emerging is uh, the safe sport movement and, you know, it's happened to be on an on a uh, webinar with the new CEO of the USOC, and I didn't realize how much influence the USOC has over most every sport in the United States. So, but let's, think, let's wait. Let's give the listeners um, the code here: USOC, U- United States Olympic Committee. Yes. And so I think that this new uh, woman that has been hired, I think she is incredibly well suited to that position. And there's a lot of hope. I mean, there's a lot of skepticism from the people on the safe sport side of things. They'd like to see more faster. But, you know, when we look at the whole thing, I mean, you know, there are there are coaches who are well noted for training um Grand Slam champions and number one players in the world, and yet they have foul mouths that you might not want your children to be exposed to. Mm-hmm. So pick your poison. I mean, some, 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 you know, I don't know. I mean, I, one of the one of the things that I bring up is Bobby Knight because he creates this sort of ethical moral dilemma of of he had an image he actually actively played up an image and and so people view him as being this horrible abusive monster which you know fair or unfair it's it's real and yet he has held the record for the highest graduation rate of his athletes so so here over here you have this guy he's he's really mean but your kid's going to graduate with honors and and go on to and live a happy, successful life. And then over here, you have a players coach who whose players graduate twenty percent of the time, but everybody loves them. So who's the abuser? Mm-hmm. I mean, so we, you know, so it, it's a really so. There's but a why can't we have both? Well, there's a, why can't we yeah, have both things? That's a really interesting thing. So why why is everyone south of Bobby Knight on graduation rate? I that's a I wish I knew the answer to that question. Maybe he's not as such a bad guy as as the image he has. Okay, and he's had you know three to five instances where he's done something horrific, but. You know, other people have none of those, and they're using athletes as fresh red meat for their own success, and and they don't really give a flying leap about their future, really. So, yeah, I mean, so ultimately, I mean, yes, let's aspire to that. Let's aspire to be the best of, of both worlds. Let's be, you know, um, let's look at our athletes in a holistic sense of we're part of their timeline of success and we're part of their timeline for a certain period of time. And then they will go on to someone else, something else. So do we make the most out of our 
out of our time. Right. One of the things you reference in your book is a tier one versus a tier two coach. What what is that? What does that mean? Okay, so this is a this is something that I um, adopted from the Omni Athlete Movement, uh, which is an offshoot of the Sports Energy Consciousness Group. Okay, and I, and went I want to, my to talk. First... I want to talk about that too. But go ahead. Okay. All right. So I went to my first Sports Energy Consciousness Group conference last year in Marin County, and it was nothing short of transformative. I, I came away from that weekend a different person. So I can't say enough about them. And now a little background. Uh, they're essentially a group of people who were the cutting edge, edge sports psychologists and sort of inner work people, inner game of sports that emerged in the mid-60s to late-60s. And everybody thought they were uh, insane or spooky or cultish or whatnot. Um, and then, you know, then, you know, many years later, then sports psychology became commonplace and accepted everywhere. So, so the omni athlete thing is about, you know, ath- looking at an athlete for their whole person on the, you know, developmentally, uh, pre career, during their career, post career. How are they going to cope with no longer being an athlete? So a tier a tier one coach is is really good at the fundamentals and really good at getting a player's game from here to there. And they might work on the mental game a little bit, but the mental game only as a function of helping them win more matches or games. They're not they're not thinking about it so much in terms of life skills that will help them, you know, go on to dynamic success later in life uh then the tier two coach i think um the tier two coach takes it comes back to the timeline i mean doing things at doing things in time at the appropriate time in a way that facilitates the maximum growth as a person for the athlete you know i mean look look at um Look at, say, a Nick Kyrgios. I would say that. <laughs> okay. No. I mean, look at look at Nick Kyrgios. Okay. So I'm going to say that that too late in the game, um, people took notice that he had some pretty serious character flaws and, and did not address them early enough. And now he is who he is. And, and I, you know, I'll be interested to see if, if Nick Kyrgios ever has an epiphany. Um, I sure maybe hope will. so. Oh man. I yeah. mean, what, yeah. what a talented. So, ugh, right. Yeah. Okay. So what we have, and I faced this in NorCal. Um, I faced this in North Northern California, the attitude of don't discipline that poorly behaved tennis player because they're good. Right. And so that's, that's, I don't even, is, there's nothing lower than tier one, but that's the bottom of tier one is leave them alone. Don't distract them with character development because they have the talent to be great. And I'm like, okay, this is how monsters are created. Yeah. You know, the, the, the advancement. Okay. So, so, and if I can, you know, I, I feel like I'm kind of getting on a roll here. So, you know, I look at, I look at somebody like Aaron Hernandez you know, who was a football player who then uh, murdered one or two or three people, um, one of whom was a friend. And at age 17, he shot his friend. And that was in the town where he would then go on to play college football. And so in my mind's eye, I'm thinking, okay, somebody before that noticed that he had a violent edge that was outside the lines and was not going to serve him well. So any, anyone, any coach who tried to intervene with him and really gave it their best effort and really worked to try to help him, you know, go, go in a better direction, blessings and kudos to that person, whether it worked or not, making the attempt is everything. 
But for every coach who simply advanced him to the next level because he's good, we'll just ignore that he's a bully to his teammates and we'll just advance him because we win football games when he's on our team. Mm. That's the legacy of those coaches. And I think it's a shameful legacy. And so people, I mean, so to me, I have no joy in Bill Belichick because I believe, and if somebody can prove me wrong on this, I will apologize, right? If somebody can show me some sort of proof that Bill Belichick either didn't know that he was violent or that he went out of his way to try to intervene with him, um, then I'll, I'll take all this back. But until that happens, then this is a part of Bill, Bill Belichick's legacy. Interesting. Yeah, I and, mean, and, coaches have yeah. to take responsibility too, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, but here's the interesting thing. And now, now let's, let's flip it around, though, because coaches then might say, hey, that's not fair. What, where were the parents? Right? And it's like, okay, sure. I mean, parents, what, where were the parents? Where, what, what were Nick Curios' parents doing? Right? Mm-hmm. Why, did, why did Aaron Hernandez's parents allow this? Why couldn't they intervene? But, you know, if we're a coach and we really care, if we love our sport, then we want to weave those sort of characters out of our sport, not, not promote them. So, Interesting. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so, so let's circle back to this whole idea of the omni athlete and what that means. Okay. So it's funny because I'm relatively a neophyte in the organization. So I, I have the title of catalyst, which means I guess I'm on level. I'm, I'm, I'm not one of the originators of the thing, but I've been promoting it a lot. So, so they gave me a little creep, a little, uh, a little title called Catalyst for the Sports Energy Consciousness Group. So, so the omni, omni, you know, meaning all, right, all-encompassing, uh, you know, stops and looks at everything that goes into being an athlete and being, being the person that becomes a champion, you know, both on the field and in life. So my so from diet to mindset to education to training to rest and re- rehabilitation to um, you know recreation to creating a culture of enjoyment um, and playing for love of the sport. So uh, okay, so last year's keynote was absolutely amazing and and this is going to be a diatribe so let me see if i can do this concisely but um so the the keynote was delivered by a married couple both of whom were olympic athletes and and it really set the tone because the keynote actually came at the beginning of the conference which i was a little different for me i'm usually used to middle or the end but Anyway, so the one guy, Jason, was an Olympic rower for Canada, and all through his junior uh, rowing career, he'd won everything. So he'd been a member. Of, so all of his junior experience of rowing was winning, winning, winning everything. And so he jo- he's on the national team now, and his, and his boat is by far the favorite for the gold. Um, in the Olympics in Barcelona. And so they lose and they lose big. They finish sixth. So he goes home and he looks at the newspaper and on the front page of the newspaper is a picture of he and his teammates slumped over in the boat. And the headline says, Canadians bomb in the Olympics. Ouch. And he went into a tailspin. But see, all, all his whole career, he was coached by a legendary coach who approached rowing like it was war. And so we're going to battle, and your goal is to kill the other boats. 
And so to him, that meant the ultimate defeat. He had been killed. Mm-hmm. So he went into a tailspin, and I'll save you the details, but, you know, he, it got pretty bad for him. So then um, he, tell, he tells about being introduced to another Olympic athlete. So his friends realized he was in a, it was in a tailspin, so they introduced him to his now wife, and he says, I was wise not to ask her about her running until we had been out on the date for about three hours. <laughs> so, um, but he really, but she was a runner. She was quite accomplished and ran in many big races and was in, I think, two, two different Olympics. Uh, a very solid veteran, successful runner and had one meets and whatnot. All right, so her problem was that she had a kind of a chronic disease. She had a chronic problem with her stomach. So she was, she was actually in the midst of making a comeback from a very serious illness, which, which debilitated her ability to really train. So anyway, so she said, well, okay, uh, yes, here, I have a race coming up, and I'm just going to see how it goes. It's the Commonwealth Games, <laughs> which is like the next thing down from the Olympics for a lot of people. It's the Commonwealth Games, but I'm just going to see where I'm at. I just want to see w- what's happening. And he said later he, he thought that was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard. <laughs> what, what kind of, what, you know, and then... And then he said, well, what's your strategy? And she said, well, I just want to have fun with it. And he's like, that's the worst strategy I've ever heard. So what ends up happening is she runs the race and she's, she's not doing well. And while she's in the middle of her race, she hears an audible voice in her, in her mind that says, go for it. So she's like in sixth or seventh place, and this voice says, "Go for it." <laughs> and she she goes all out and she passes five people, and she finishes with a silver medal in the Commonwealth Games. Wow! And it blew everybody's mind. And when her teammate and they, she shows the video of her teammate looking back in disbelief at her finishing second. You could not believe it. And so then at that moment, she decided that from then on, she was only going to run for love. Right. Now, that's the setup. Um, so her, her love of sport infected him, and he learned how to love sport. And now they have this, they have this evaluation that they give people. Right. Here's how much you know you are operating out of love. Because you love yourself no matter how well you do. And you love the competition no matter how tough it is. And you love your opponent no matter how difficult they make it. And so, so that, if you that ties in so much with Tony Nadal's philosophy, right? of respect, respect for the game, respect for self, respect for opponent. Absolutely. And I, you respect, I think is a, is a good, um, it's a manifestation of love. And I, you know, but I, but respect, I don't, I don't see it at the same level. Maybe that's what he means. I don't, I don't, I haven't really studied Tony Nadal closely. But I do know that that's, you know, obviously a very tight knit relationship between he and Rafa. So um, they have done it right in many regards. So and, you know, bringing in bringing in. Um, Moya. Um, Carlos, Moya. Carlos yeah. Moya, you know, yeah. who's one of the coolest guys maybe there's ever been on the tour. Right. Yeah. What a fun guy to hang out with. So. um yeah, I mean, so we if we build our teams around love, then we've really got something, you know. So we need to be 
we need to love our kids. We need to train our kids that to love the sport. They need to love their teammates. They need to love the opponent. And and when they do that, I mean, that's definitely tier two. And maybe there needs to be another tier. I don't know. I, d- I didn't make it up, so I can't really. I don't, I don't think I get to change it just yet. Um, well, so, I mean, kind of a, a nice segue from that is the whole idea of – teaching kids to give a hundred percent effort when they are playing their sport, training for their sport, whatever that means on the day. Right. So when, when you write about giving a hundred percent effort, what does that encompass to you? And how is a focus on a hundred percent effort? How does that different from a focus on winning and losing? Oh, that's wow. All right. All right. Well, some, I think many people are aware that there's this thing called the Borg scale of perceived effort. So the player has an understanding of what to them is, is a hundred percent effort. And almost always when I meet a new athlete, our idea of a hundred percent efforts differ. So I have kids who think who've been trained with the notion of 110% effort. And I don't think that works because I don't know where that extra 10% comes from. Because last I, last I heard a hundred percent is everything. So how do you get more? I mean, that's like out of final tap. This amp goes to 11. So (laughs) it's not, it's it's nonsense. So a hundred, so if you, so I want to, I, I think if, if you've been saying out there 110% effort, please stop. Because what I see is I see kids who are trying too hard and their tension level goes up. And then because of the lack of efficiency there, then they're really giving 90 because they get locked up. They're making mistakes. They get frantic and desperate. So, um, so Helping the athlete to understand what is 100% effort is kind of a challenge, and they have to discover it, really. So, um, I, you know, and kids have a hard enough time giving 100%, so why would we ask for 110? That's kind of crazy. So generally what will happen when I'm meeting a new group of athletes is we'll do, some, we'll do the spider run, you know, and it's pretty grueling. It's just like a good 20, 17 to 20 seconds of grueling, which will get your legs burning for sure. You get some lung burn perhaps. And, and, then, and then the funny thing happens, I go, all right, now rate the, the, the level of effort that you get yourself. Tell me what your effort level was. And so they report back to me what they think. And then I go, okay, well, you said – 95 you said 80 82 and i like i to me that looked like 70. you've got a little more in there okay so give a little more and then we'll re we'll we'll re-rate it and you'll have this interesting range with the kids because their ratings will all differ you 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 get an also can get a read on their mentality, each individual athlete on your team, their particular mentality. Um, so that's one way to do it. Another one is then to, uh, you know, have them do, have them do the, um, the drill and, you know, kind of rate their thing and then have them race. And when you see the difference in effort level, because now it's a race, then you go, Hey, something, something funny happened there. You all were going faster. (laughs) Why is that? Are you not capable of giving 100% effort unless you're racing somebody and there's the threat of maybe losing? Huh. So so that's part of discovery. Now onto the kind of the winning and losing thing. Well, you know, if you take two players and they're equal in every other regard and one gives 100% effort and the other one gives 95, then, then... 95% 95% effort is good for second place in the match every time. Well, um, I'm fact, not sure I agree with that. 
No, wait, if I said, if everything else is equal. Ah, gotcha. Okay. If, okay. So that's why I put that caveat in there. Okay. Now, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Now let's say, and then let's say one player slightly better than another. I don't know how many times I've seen this where one player is a little more talented, maybe a little bit better athlete, um, but they have serious issues with effort and the less talented player gives a supreme effort and pulls the upset. I have seen that many times. Sure. Many times. So so that it can be the deciding factor. And then there's this there's this issue of investment. So when you invest a hundred percent in practice and in matches and point to point the best you can, then you're gonna get the most reward from that. You're gonna get the most interest your body will respond. So you're, you're sending a signal to your brain. Okay. Hey, th this is me doing five spider runs at hundred percent effort. And then your brain says, Oh, I, you know, I have to make Johnny faster and, and with more stamina because he's really putting me through some stuff here. So you're, so we're very adaptable, um, resilient and adaptable. And so if, when we put our body under, uh, maximum effort loads, then it responds by preparing us more for the next time around if we give ourselves some rest in between. Right. Right. So, so yeah, so ultimately bottom line on that one is if you give your best effort, you're going to have the best chance of winning. But from a coaching side and as an adjunct from a parenting side, it's very difficult, I think, for us to focus on effort and reward effort when the results aren't there. And I think that's, to me, one of the hardest parts of parenting an athlete is removing the results from the equation in, in terms of their development, right? And looking again, looking at them to use your words as an omni athlete, really focusing on them as an entire person, not just as an athlete and focusing on their, the development of the whole person, not just the athlete. And sometimes when you do that, you don't get the positive results right away. It takes months or even years for the, the winning to happen. Ooh. Okay. So what is winning? Oh my goodness. All right. So I just took over, um, a, a horrible tennis team. And so I, it's it, my, <laughs> the, the kids, the kids won't argue with me if the, if they happen to hear this or any of the parents are listening in, they will all readily agree that that in this five team league, by far, my team was the worst. Okay. There were four teams that were pretty competitive with each other, and you know the top team had some kids who were who had Division One and Division Two talent, and you know I have a team of intermediates and beginners. Okay, high school kids. So, what age are we talking about? Kids. Okay. High school kids. So. So what they were used to was playing lineup in a blender because the other coach didn't want kids to get their feelings hurt, you know, by getting hammered at the number one position. So it was just, you know, hey, hey, who want, who wants to take the beating today at number one? Well, no, enter Coach Bill. Um, Harrison, you, you now that you are the number one player, you will play number one all season, and you're going to set an example as team captain for all the other kids. Ready? ready coach. Okay. So Harrison stepped up and, you know, and then the, he, he lost a few sets in bagels. Right. But as the season went on, you know, we were, I was, I was able to show him, Hey, do you see how you're winning more points now? How do you feel about this? Right. I mean, I'll get into, you know, how does it feel to be getting a little bit more competitive with these guys who, you know, are hitting, you know, 120 mile an hour serves and 80 mile an hour forehand. And he felt great. So, um, he did not 
did he win any league matches? He might have. But but he was all in on the concept of just going all out and having the best possible experience rather than rather than just going through the motions and getting beaten O and O in thirty seven minutes and being done. So it's it's not easy. You're right, it's not easy. And that's why but wait, I you know, and this is what I tell my kids all the time. If this was easy, your parents wouldn't pay me. So so you have to you know, it took me a long time, I think, to be really 100% all in, fully convicted. This is the way I'm going. And everybody who's going this way is on my team. And everybody that's not going this way is not. So, you know, it, when I was a school teacher, I, re- I came to the realization that there's a difference between mentally assenting to the idea of good behavior and being 100% committed to making it happen. And how, do, just, you, yeah. how do you translate that from the classroom to the tennis court? By helping the players learn some discipline. And and. and I think, this, okay, here's the secret sauce. If anybody wanted to get some value out of this talk, here's the secret sauce. Sell them on self-discipline. So, you know, we'll, we'll have a moment where just all hell is breaking loose at practice and everybody, you know, too few people are doing what I actually want them to do. And so I bring them together and, you know, I've already, you know, probably have already sort of harshed them out about something. And so I just then I asked them, I'm like, hey, look, what's better? What's better? Is self-discipline better or is it better to be disciplined by other people? And you'd be surprised that teenagers will say self-discipline. I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, then do it. (laughs) Right? I mean, yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's that easy. It's that easy. And then if, and then, you know, then if it were to continue, I'd go, hey, look, guys, just a moment ago, uh, Evan here said that self-discipline was better. So why are you not doing it? Are you telling me you want me to discipline you? So, um, and I think another thing I got from the classroom, and I, more, more, more tennis coaches should have teaching credentials. Uh, this would be quite helpful, um, is this idea of progressive discipline. So if somebody's acting up, then I might just motion at them and go wave at them and go give them the, hey, cease and desist motion, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then they do. And then I go, thanks. And then all anybody, the only attention they got was for cease and desisting. Right. And if they continue, then I pull them aside and I go, hey, Steve, you know what? I, I need you to knock that off, you know? It's not, it's dangerous. It's disruptive. It's not, it's not helpful. You're not helping me. You're not helping yourself. Okay, coach. Right. Then the third one is, you know, if that if I'm having a pattern, especially on the same day, and I'm like, you know what? You need to go sit. Getting a timeout. Ooh. Ouch. Yeah. Right? And yeah. then and then if we have a continuing thing, then I'm calling home. I will call and I'll go, Hey, uh, you know, here's what happened. You know, Steve is is misbehaving and you know, there was a time when he did this and I gave him the message to stop. And then I pulled him aside and talked to him for a second. And then I sat him down and he's still doing it. So mom, dad, you got any hints for me about how to get through to him? Can I put him on the phone <laughs> with you? Right. So, right. or, you know, generally what I do when I sit them down, is I go, hey, the next step is I'm going to call your folks, right? Shall we avoid the next step? Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 don't, don't call my mom, right? No, and right. I've had, I've had inner, inner city thugs get scared when I threaten to call their mom. Sure. No kid likes their mom or dad <laughs> called. Absolutely. Right. Well, right. Okay. Well, because they know the belt's coming out when they get home. Oh, gosh. So. Hope not. Hope not. But so, Bill, we're, we're down to our last 15 minutes or so. So I want to make sure we get to this because I think it's really important. And that's the whole idea of what we're seeing with tennis 
coaches out in the communities. And um, before we hit the record button today, you and I were talking about a recent Facebook post that we both saw and I reposted on the Parenting Aces page um, that was posted by Reno Manny. And I'll have a link to that post in the show notes for those of you who missed it. But let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so we've already talked about the snake oil salesman, right? Yep. So, so, so that post kind of address um, people who present themselves as being more or better than they are. And, and that resonates with a lot of people. And I think the first thing I want to say is stop. Um, because it's not helpful. And po- positivity and negativity are highly contagious. So, so I, I wonder how many people read that and then they wonder, is he talking about me? So when you put something, when somebody puts something out like that, lots of people chime in because they can relate to it, but it sort of poisons the atmosphere, right? And honestly, I'm a friend of Oyvind Sorvold. And so I read that and I went, wow, why Oyvind? Because I, I can't vouch for Oyvind's coaching ability in Norway and how I don't know the circumstances of what he's had to overcome to finally get people on tour from Norway. But I've been to Norway and the weather's not great. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so and having and and knowing Oyvin and being his friend and seeing what he's created, I just don't I just don't think it's helpful because I you know I've used Oyvin's app and I like it and I want to use it more. So so my question was where's the threshold? How do you all when do people all of a sudden know that they have credibility and who confers that on them? Yeah. What's what's the answer to that? And and again, you know, taking it back because this is the Parenting Aces podcast, and you know, we're trying to help the parents out there do better by their kids. How how do parents discern? And and you know, it's I have for the past eight years said you need to make sure your kid's coach is certified by USPTA or PTR. Well, then I have Sid Newcomb on the podcast who tells me that, you know, they test and certify teaching pros all the time. But one of the things, I mean, nowhere on the testing and nowhere in the education is junior development and junior development pathways and college recruiting. And so what good is that certification if your child's goal is to achieve the highest level in the sport. And that certified coach doesn't have the knowledge to do that. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's called shopping. I mean, you have to shop and you have to ask tough questions. I think what, I think the, what people, what parents do is they just sign up or they, you know, they just listen to the, they can, uh, that the coach gives or they, you know, they, um, they look at the website and the website looks spiffy. So, so they go. Um, okay. And then you, you, in different regions, the answer is different. So I can't give one answer, right? Maybe you live in an area where the best coach is a B minus coach and everybody mm-hmm. else is a B plus. Well, mm-hmm. and maybe B B minus because he's sort of the, the kingpin around town is charging too much. Well, what are you going to do? You know, right. um, you're either going to pay it or you're going to move. Right. Okay. So, but so, so you've written a book called the athlete centered coach. How yes. does a parent evaluate a coach and say, this is an athlete centered coach which is what yeah, I'm looking think, for for my child. Right. I think I think first off is you have to realize, okay, so, I, you know, it's a great plug. I would say read the book. 
mean? Because, like, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you, you know, saw that in it, that it creates sort of this true north. And so then you, you're armed with some information about what should I look for as, as good things to look for that attract me, and then also red flags that serve as warning signs. And yet, um, everyone, most people will, who have no integrity, will generally go along with everything the parent says. So, like, let's say you want your kids to be in a program that's also fun. You know, you want, you want good training, but you also want it to be fun. So then you could ask the coach, hey, are you a really strict disciplinarian? Because I want the kids to be working hard 100% of the time. And then listen to their response. Right. Well, it's a leading question for sure. Right. So you want to lead them down the road of what you don't want so they can answer you because no, because there's this, what's it called? It's the availability heuristic. It's um, people tend to want to please other people. So they're going to give you the people pleaser answer if that's what you want. And when people ask me that question, I say, well, you know, you might want to try that program over there because I try to have a balance of fun with it. So yeah, the kids are, I expect the kids to come with an, an attitude of being ready to learn, you know, but I also want them to have fun and I want them to interact some when we have a water break, you know, we might tell jokes for a moment um, because we want to have a good time. And, and that's the number one reason why kids play sports. And it's the number one reason why kids quit sports right? because it just stops being fun. Sure. They want to be with, they want to, the top, the top, five or so reasons why kids play sports is because they, they, they want it to be fun. They want to be with their friends. They want to make new friends. They want to get better. They want to improve at something. They want to belong. And, and, you know, winning is like way down, way down at the bottom. It's, it's, it's like in the, in the double digits, you know, but um, those kinds of processes then will lead to much better successes. So, so I would say use a little bit of disinformation on the coach to to see if you can suss out what their real honest to goodness values are. Mm-hmm. And then people generally say a, approximately three point five things about program about things that they like, but they say eight point five things about things they don't like. So ask around. Go talk to the other parents who are in the program. Go talk to the parents that are in other programs. See if you can find some former players of the other program. That's huge because yeah. you might you might get the real scoop. Oh yeah, we left that because blank. Right. Um. So look for that stuff. I mean, try to try to maintain some some positivity. Here's one thing. I despise. I sometimes get kids who've left other programs and then they come to my program thinking they're going to run down that other coach. <laughs> nope. You got another thing coming, right? So no, Ethan, coach Susie is great, right? So you should show somebody, you, you should probably go back and say thank you to coach Susie um, mm-hmm. because she's out there working really hard, you know, and she got you to this point. And now you're here with me and I'm just not going to let you run her down while you're here because we have a, this is one of our ethics in this program is that we keep things positive and we build the greater tennis community. You know, Um, I one time got an anonymous, I one time got an anonymous, uh, I sometimes get anonymous phone call and one of them came in a Russian voice and it said, you suck and your program sucks and you're overweight and, blah, 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 blah. and I was like, wow, like, thanks for making my day. You know, and I'm wow. like, what, what possesses people to do that? So, but we have, we have this, this is a problem in the tennis community. So if you're doing that kind of behavior, if you're running other coaches down, stop. Right. If you, uh, but with this caveat, if they're doing something criminal, right uh, or abusive or something if they're doing something that really needs to be called out then call them all the way out and i'll tell you what i mean i just i just don't think it's appropriate 
because Oyvind Sorvold, Sorvold is a really terrific human being. Interesting. Okay, we are we are at the end of our hour. So really quickly before we say goodbye, I want you to please tell us how do we get the athlete centered coach by Bill Patton. Okay, awesome. It's on Amazon, um, and so you can get it easily there. It's e- it's in an ebook and in print form. Or if you would like to buy a signed copy from me, you can reach out to me via email at. Uh, 720degreecoaching at gmail.com, 720degreecoaching at gmail. And then, you know, you can just PayPal me and, and I'll, I'll personalize your book for you. Okay. I'm going to have all of those links in the show notes at parentingaces.com. So listeners, be sure to check that out. And Bill, it's been a pleasure. And once again, our what hour has flown. Oh, yeah. Can but, I throw but, one more thing in there? Sure. And then also you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is The Athlete-Centered Coach, Bill Patton. So um, so I'm, I'm, almost every week I put new free content up there. So looking for some more subscribers. Okay, awesome. We'll have a link to that as well. And um, again, thank you so much for doing the podcast for writing yet another really insightful tome for us to use in our quest to do better as tennis parents and parents in general and tennis coaches and coaches in general. And it's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you so much, Lisa. And to my audience, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, I hope you'll share the podcast with your tennis community. For all the information you need to navigate the junior and college tennis journey, be sure to check out parentingaces.com.